Recently, I had uh, some conversations with two different people here in the church, and they both dealt with the same general question, which is the question we're going to be discussing here this morning. And that question has to do with how you and I know as Christians that the things we believe to be true are true. How do we know? This is Christ the King Sunday, in case you haven't picked up on the theme so far through the songs we've been singing and the scripture that we've heard already. This is the uh, last day of the church's liturgical calendar, uh, which means, of course, next Sunday is the start of the church's liturgical calendar. And and coincidentally, that is also um, the first Sunday of Advent, which which is hard to believe it's here, isn't it? It's, It's hard to believe that we start uh, celebrating the Christmas season here in just a week, but uh, not yet, not yet. We will get to Christ's first advent after we spend this last Sunday talking about Christ's second advent. And uh, this is the day where we focus primarily on the lordship of Christ, his preeminence in all of creation, um, his present reign and his future return. But the question is, in light of that, how certain are we that what we believe is true? What do we base our convictions upon? How do we know that what we claim to know is worth knowing? Well, to answer that question, we're going to revisit our passage here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in this passage now. This will be the third week in a row, and we started in verse 13. We've been sort of working our way down verse by verse. We're going to pick up in verse 18 and, and read all the way down through the rest of the chapter. So if you have a guest Bible, uh, we're on page 978. I'm going to be reading uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now, in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, there in the first verse that I read, verse 18, uh, maybe, you, maybe it stood out to you, maybe it did not. But you, you'll, if you look back at that verse in your Bibles there, he, Peter says that his readers know something. There's something that they know. And it is that God has paid a ransom to save them. Now, a Gentile reader in the first century, when they hear the word ransom or hear the idea of redemption, the first thing that, come, that would have come to their mind would be the payment of silver or gold to release a, a slave from captivity. Now, when you think of slavery, you usually, like I do, probably think of you know, early American slave trade. And, and 
and rightfully so. That's part of our history, and that's where our minds tend to go. But slavery is not isolated to that one part of the world and that one part of time. Slavery has been a part of, of humanity well, as far back as we can, as far back as we have history to look back into. And certainly in the Roman period of time, slavery was a widespread, and I would even say normal part of life in the Roman Empire. And the value of a slave varied greatly depending on the, the, the sex of the slave, the age, and probably most importantly, uh, the, the level of skill or competency. What does the slave bring to the, the household? What can they do? What are they, what are they skilled with? Now, the average slave, um, well, I would say the average unskilled slave, um, you know, the value for someone like that would probably be roughly about the equivalent of two years of pay for a standard Roman soldier. So if you're part of the Roman army and you're just a foot soldier and you make this much money for two years, that's about the cost to you if you were to have sort of an unskilled average slave in your household, which would also amount to about two months worth of a centurion's salary, all right? So they made about 15 times as much as, as far as I could uh, deduce from the various sources that, that are authorities on the matter. So if you're a foot soldier, it's two years worth. If, it's a, if you're a commander of foot soldiers, you're looking at two or three months worth of your salary. Skilled slaves, of course, would be worth far more than that. So if they have things that they, specialties they can bring, if they're specialists in a certain area, then they would bring uh, much higher uh, value. That's how a Gentile would have thought about the idea of a ransom, or uh, a, the idea of redemption, it's the same thing. It's this idea that money has been paid to, to buy or purchase or redeem someone out of slavery. But a Jew would have thought quite differently about the topic. That's because their primary picture of redemption was not the exchange of silver and gold, but the shedding of blood. That's because central to their whole existence as a people was that great act of deliverance from the Old Testament. You remember, you remember what it's called? It was the, the Exodus, right? The people of God were slaves in, in Egypt, and God ransomed his people. God rescued and delivered his people, not at the cost of silver and gold, but at the price of a lamb's blood. It would die that they might be set free. Each Hebrew family's freedom was purchased with blood. And Peter says, in our passage here, in the same way, not talking about money, not talking about the exchange of goods and services. Peter says, when we're talking about redemption, when we're talking about being a ransom being paid for our lives as believers, as followers of Christ, in the same way, God has paid the ransom for you. In the cost of your redemption, from captivity to sin and death is not something you ever could have paid for by yourself. And that's a really important sort of fundamental aspect of, Christ, of, of basic Orthodox Christian doctrine is that you cannot purchase, you cannot secure for yourself your own redemption. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can give that can pay the price of your sinfulness. And there's many a people that occupy sanctuaries or worship centers, whatever you want to call them, not that much different than this one, who think if I just do enough good things or if I just give enough to the offering plate, then somehow I would have purchased for myself freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. And that is a lie from hell. The, 
Elon Musk could walk through the doors here this morning, the richest man in the world. He could drop a billion dollar check in the offering plate. And it wouldn't get him any closer to heaven than if he stayed where he, I don't know what he's doing this morning. Who knows? Anybody know what Elon Musk is up to this morning? No idea. But you can't purchase it for yourself. You can't bribe God. You can't gain anything from God by, by doing or giving anything. God is the one who has paid the price for you. And it wasn't paid. Verse 18 with mere silver or gold, which lose their value. Those things are corruptible. Those things, the value of those things, come and go. And, and right now, you know, gold, I don't know, gold, gold's worth about $2,000 an ounce, something like that. Tomorrow it could be worth nothing. It could be worth nothing. It could be worth $4,000 an ounce tomorrow. It could be worth $10,000 an ounce. Who knows? But the point is, those things are corruptible. Those things are temporary. Those things have value that come and go. And value is always relative. What value is a gold block to a, you know, someone dying on an island somewhere? There's no value. They, they trade it in an instant for a, a, a boat ride back to the land. Or for a sweet tea. I don't know. What, what, you see, the, the point is, those things don't matter in the grand scheme of life. Peter says your, your redemption did not come by things that are corruptible, things that, who's, that, that have value that, that changes and fluctuates over time. No, our redemption came at the cost of the most precious thing there is. It came at the cost of the incorruptible one's life. Verse 19, it was the precious blood of Christ. And notice what he says next. The sinless, spotless What? Lamb of God. You know what's in Peter's mind. When he's talking about redemption, he's not talking about Roman era slave trade. He's talking about the Exodus. That fundamental picture of delivery to the Jewish mind and heart. That you are alive today because something died for you. And that something pointed ahead to something greater. A greater deliverance a greater redemption, a greater ransom. His blood, his life was offered as a payment for us. And amazingly, verse 20 tells us that that is something that God had in mind since before the creation of the world. Now, I recognize that that brings all sorts of philosophical, theological questions, and I wouldn't presume to be able to answer them all perfectly or to have time to dive into them this morning. But it's sufficient for now, to just realize, and perhaps it's not even meant for us to understand as much as it is for us to revere, this idea that God has always intended in his mind, in his heart, to make a way for you to belong to him. And we know that, verse 20, because this reality has been revealed to us. And that's the first thing to ever knowing anything to be true. And I mean true in an ultimate sense. I'm not talking about human truth, things that we have deduced on our own, from our own you know, intellect or through our own research or discovery. I'm talking about ultimate truth that has to be revealed from heaven down. You and I cannot intuit our way into an exhaustive knowledge of God. No, God has to make himself known. The things of God that are ultimately true and ultimately real have to be disclosed to us. And Peter says, this truth that God paid a ransom for you and that God planned to do it from eternity past has been revealed to you now in these last days. You and I, 
in the church age, the, the last days. That's what he said. He says these last days, the last days, the church era. You and I know something because it has been revealed. There is truth that you and I have come to know because it has been disclosed. Nevertheless, you and I are finite creatures. We're surrounded by all sorts of challenges, not the least of which would be a very skeptical and hostile world and culture. And doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how closely you have walked with Jesus, you're a human being just like I am. And even though we know these things and these things have been revealed to us, there are times where doubts creep in. And you might be sitting there thinking all haughtily to yourself, I've never had doubts. Well, kudos to you. You would be the very rare exception if you're even being honest with yourself at all. There are times when we have revelation. I mean, ultimate reality has been, there's a witness to it that is trustworthy and true from cover to cover. Nevertheless, there's times where we're, we're tempted to second guess it. How do we know that it's true? How do I know? How do I know that what I've put my, my faith in is, is, is real? And listen, pastors have their moments too. I know that because I am one. <laughs> and I have them. Peter knows this as much as any of us. Those of you who are familiar with Peter's own story. He walked through his own season of, of doubt and uncertainty. and Well, he even took it to a place where I've never even gone. So he, he can speak with authority, not just, not just because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we, we firmly believe that every, every, every bit of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit through its, in and through the human author for every, every page of the Scriptures. But he, he knows these things not just because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but because he walked through these things. He lived through these things. He can speak with authority from his own experience, his own life testimony. And so from that, he, he gives us this beautiful spirit-filled shepherding counsel to, to the flock of God that has been entrusted to his care. And so, with all that in mind, we, we ask the question again, how do we know the things of faith to be true? Well, the answer, as I see it in the text, comes uh, in a twofold way. And the first is, we, we have an objective basis for our faith, and then secondly, we have a subjective basis for our faith. Okay, and we're going to explore these two things with our time here this morning. The first is the objective basis of our faith. It is what? It is what God, it is what Christ has done in history. In history. Look at verse 21 with me one more time. There at the beginning of verse 21. Uh, actually, the second half of verse 21. You have placed your faith and hope in God. Why? Because God raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Friends, why do we believe that there is a God at all? Why are we Christians? Well, yes, there's all sorts of wonderful apologetic answers to those questions. But ultimately, the primary and most fundamental reason that you and I believe that there is a God and you and I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ is because of the resurrection. 
Now, back at Easter, maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Well, back, at, back at Easter, I preached a sermon from 1 Corinthians 15. And you might recall from that chapter, those first 11 verses where uh, the Apostle Paul lays out uh, his argument for what I've called the historicity of the resurrection, that it is something that actually happened in space and time. It's not just a concept. It's not just some sort of philosophical notion. It's not just an idea. This, the, we, we don't believe in the idea of a, of a symbolic resurrection. We believe in an actual, literal, physical, bodily resurrection that happened in this world in time. It actually happened. And we believe that with all of our hearts. And, and, and Paul was, was discussing this in 1 Corinthians 15 because a question had arisen there um, in Corinth. You remember the question in verse 12. Some of you are saying there will be no resurrection from the dead. That was the issue that Paul is addressing. So they had some, some kind of faith, but it did not include any type of, of life after death in a resurrection type of form. And so Paul says, no, there will be a resurrection from the dead. And we know this because there has already been in history a resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on to lay out all the evidence for it. And we analyzed that together that Sunday. If you want to revisit that, you're welcome to go on to Facebook or YouTube or our podcast and pull back, uh, go back to Easter Sunday and, and, and re-listen to that if, or listen to it for the first time if you missed it. And we, there we went through all the, the evidence that, that Paul lays out for the, the historicity of the resurrection. And we, we looked at some of the common objections that are raised by skeptics. And there you'll be reminded that you and I in this church, we believe that what the Bible affirms regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe it to be true. We don't doubt it. You, you might go to a church down the road and they may, they may have some different take on, on things. And they may try to, to give you a different perspective, but you'll never find a different perspective than this here. That what the Bible says is true and we believe with all of our hearts. We believe that God rose his son from the dead. And we believe that trusting that does not require some sort of unthinking, you know, close your eyes and take a jump leap of faith. No, Paul gave his readers, and by extension us today, the facts. And we believe that they stand up to the harshest of scrutiny. So here's the thing. When you start to doubt, what, what do you do? When you start to have questions, where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? What do you turn to? Well, when I feel tempted to doubt, I don't know what else to do but to recenter my mind and my heart on the resurrection. And I ask myself again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then how, there's so much you have to account for. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then how do you explain all the eyewitness accounts that, that history records for us? How do you explain how the, the disciples, their entire lives literally, completely, and radically changed overnight? And not just their lives, but their whole worldview, their whole belief system, everything that made them who they were, radically transformed in the blink of an eye. How do you make sense of that? How did they go from these scattered, dejected, you know, terrified, mourning group of cowards one day to what Acts says the next day, people who risked their lives for the name of Jesus? How do you account for that? How do they go from people who had absolutely zero impact on the world as they cowered in darkness to people that Acts 17.6 says, turn the world upside down? How do you account for that? 
How did the Christian community, and not just a few of them, but the entire Christian community, the entire early group of believers, how did they all of a sudden adopt a set of beliefs that were brand new and had been, until that time, utterly unthinkable? How do you account for that? No one believed in individual resurrections. And no one was expecting Jesus to come back to life. The Bible even shows that. I'm not talking about some sort of secular source here. The scriptures are very honest in, in saying none of them expected to see him again. They weren't waiting around for the rest. Well, Jesus, it's Sunday, man. Where have you, where, come on, let's go. That's not the picture at all. Not one of them expected to see Jesus again. That's why they were in the condition that they were. And claiming their, their leader was alive would never have crossed their minds. Unless, of course, he actually was. Let me ask you this question. Who would die for what they knew to be a lie? Now, there's people in the world all around us who would willingly die for a lie that they believe to be true. But who would willingly die for something they knew to be a lie? None of Jesus' followers renounced their faith. Not one. Every single one of them maintained their testimony to the bitter end. And you and I both know every single one of their ends were quite bitter. <laughs> Take a, a few minutes and Google today how the different 12 disciples all died. And, and look at what history records and how they maintain their testimony even through being tortured, crucified, stabbed, clubbed, stoned, burned, boiled in oil. I was having a conversation the other day with someone who's facing a very uh, uphill battle with cancer. And in that, we're having a very real conversation about life and about death and about these issues. And I, I appreciated the, the honesty and the, the sincerity in the conversation. And we're talking about there's, there's so many different ways that people can die. And, and it is true, there's some ways that are, that are better than others. You probably thought before, like, man, I hope I go that way and not that way. I can tell you, there's not one of you in here that wants to go like that. Now, at the same time, there's a particular honor in being able to give our lives for the sake of our testimony for Christ. And I'm confident that if you were ever faced with the prospect of being stoned or burned or stabbed or clubbed or boiled in oil, if it meant maintaining your testimony to the end, I, I am confident that you would maintain your testimony. But no one wants to die that way. No one wants to go through that. And so with that in mind, the blood of the martyrs demands our attention. If those guys that preached knew what they were preaching was not true, then why did they give their lives for it? And lastly, as we're thinking about these questions that I, that I return to whenever I'm tempted to doubt, as I try to recenter and, re, and refocus my mind and heart on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in space and time, is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why the empty tomb? Where's the body? If we're being honest, friends, and I don't know what level of faith everyone in here has or what doubts or skepticism you're grappling with. Maybe some of you are sitting there you know, completely rejecting everything I'm saying. It's possible. But, but if we're being honest with ourselves, 
In light of all the evidence that I believe exists, it takes more faith to reject the resurrection than to accept it. It's a greater statement of faith to reject it than to accept it. I believe it happened. And I believe those who put their faith in that have a very firm foundation. And I think Peter wants us to do that. There is an objective ground. There's an objective basis. There's a firm foundation for your faith. It's not just some wishful thinking. Now, he also says in the beginning of verse 20, I skipped these few words um, a moment ago. I read the second half. But look at the beginning of verse 20. It's really interesting what he says here. Through Christ, I'm sorry, this is verse 21. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. It's that phrase, through Christ, that has captured my attention. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. Now, I mentioned a moment ago Peter's, you know, Peter's own personal story. And you remember how um, Peter betrayed Jesus, right? The, the night that Jesus was crucified. But did you remember that back in Luke chapter 22, Jesus prayed for Peter's faith? Do you remember that? Back in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fall. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. That's interesting because Peter would go on to betray and abandon Jesus, just like all the rest of the disciples did. But his story didn't end there, did it? You remember John chapter 21, where Peter and some of the disciples were out fishing again, and, and there's a guy on the shore, and he tells them to change their tactics, and suddenly they're catching fish where before they weren't. It was just like the first time Jesus encountered the, the, the prospective disciples on the seashore. And so they know that this is, this is him. The Lord is, he's returned. He's come back from the dead. And they're on the seashore that morning, Jesus does exactly what he says. He has prayed that Peter's faith would remain. He is, and then he goes on to restore him, and he goes on to commission him to carry out his work in strengthening his brothers. Feed my sheep, he says. Feed my sheep. And so what Peter came to know about Jesus that morning is not just that Jesus is the one who secures redemption by something he did on the cross, but Jesus is the one who works to take what he did on the cross and bring it personally to Peter's life. Jesus is the one who objectively has done something on the cross and through God raising him from the dead, that salvation has been made available to all humanity, but it is through Jesus coming to me. Jesus coming to my heart, to my life, presenting himself to me personally, that that salvation becomes mine. It's not just something general for all the world at that point. It's something that comes into my life. Indeed, Revelation 3.20, behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus comes to the door of our lives and he, he taps on that door. He himself wants you to welcome him in. And then when we do, we, he brings with him all the benefits of his, of his atonement, 
all the things that he did for, for, for all the world on the cross, he comes and brings it to my life, brings it to your life. When we open the door to our lives and let him in, when we hear his voice and open the door, he says, I will come in. We will share a meal together as friends. And this invitation he extends to all who hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed and who respond to the gracious invitation of salvation by faith. Through Christ, what he has done on the cross and what he's doing now in interceding for you, tapping on the heart of your life, wanting to come in and, and bring fellowship to you. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. Peter didn't come to trust in God on his own. It was through Christ that he came to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. This, friends, is the objective ground of our faith. But Peter adds to it the subjective ground to our faith. Look at verse 22. This is the subjective basis of faith to, to what God has done in history. Peter now adds what God has done in you. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. In other words, when you surrendered your life to Christ, something happened inside of you. Something changed. Something inside of you is now different. You are different now than you were before Christ. Back in uh, June, we were going through a, a sermon series from Romans chapter 8. And in that series, there was a, a sermon that discussed what I called, it's not my idea, but what I described to you as the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that idea from Romans 8, 16, that the, the Holy Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm something. So when we come to Christ and, and we receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he speaks to your spirit and he testifies there about a certain truth. And that truth is that you and I are, are children of God. That's what Romans eight sixteen tells us. And Paul in that verse there is talking about a direct inward witness of the spirit where God himself speaks to our heart the truths of, of the things that we've come that have been revealed to us and now we are receiving uh, by faith that we belong to God as his children so there's this direct witness of the spirit to our hearts but here Peter is talking about the fruit of that he's talking about the consequences or the results of that in our lives so when the Holy Spirit of God comes into our lives and he testifies to these things about us well, what issues from that? What comes from that? It's a particular life that is marked by what? It is marked by the fruit of God's saving action in our lives, which can be boiled down to what Peter says here, to love. It is love. Love is the mark. Love is the evidence. Love is the fruit of a life that has been transformed by the grace of God. It's not just mere tolerance, right? It's not just acceptance of those who are different than you. It's not just an agreement to sort of coexist. You know, you have the, the piano side of the church over here. And then you have the organ side of the church over here. And on seat swap Sunday, when I try to get you to move and mingle with each other, you move in whole chunks across the room. And I get it. We're all guilty of that kind of thing from time to time. Sometimes we mean to, sometimes we don't. But you know, the piano people and the organ people, it's very easy for you to settle into this mode of church life where you just sort of agree to coexist with one another. Right? As long as you stay there and you stay there, we can all fill this space together and everyone can get along. 
Is that what Peter's talking about as the mark or the evidence or the fruit of the abiding spirit of God? Just mere coexistence, mere tolerance, mere acceptance of differences. No, he doesn't say that. No, he says, your life must be marked by a deep, sincere love with all your heart. It's a little different than the coexistence thing, isn't it? Your life will be marked by a deep, sincere love with all of your heart. In fact, literally in the Greek it says, love one another with intensity. That word intense is the exact same Greek word that describes the manner in which Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that where he prayed to the point of, of, of bleeding? This deep, gut-wrenching, agonizing of spirit. That word means stretched or strained. It's this idea that Peter is saying that changed persons who have been radically transformed on the inside out will agonize in love for one another. This is a love that you cannot produce on your own. You cannot muster it up on your own. It is not a natural love. It is a supernatural love. It is a love that comes from outside of you. It is agape love. A love that comes from God because that's what, that's what God is. It is his very essence. And when Jesus describes salvation as, I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you, what he's saying is the thing the whatness of God comes into you and it comes through you. And that's the evidence of it. You know that you have actually been, God himself actually abides in, in you when the things of God issue from your life. Changed persons will agonize in love for one another. It is love that comes from God. It's love that binds together the community of God, the church. It is the mark of the inner transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 John 3.14, if we love brothers and sisters who are believers, friends, when you love one another like this, when you agonize in love for each other, not just coexisting, team piano, team organ, when you, when you let your lives intersect, when you make sacrifices for each other, when you do things and say things that are that are costly, that are selfless, that affirm and encourage and meet needs and build up. When you do that, John says, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? What it says is that when you and I witness this kind of love at work in our life together as the church, it validates everything we believe to be true. Because when that happens, it's not something that the world can produce in us or that we can produce in us. It is something that only God can produce in us. So it doesn't just validate what we believe to be true. It proclaims what we believe to be true to the world around us. John 17, 23 I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. In other words, when God 
has his way and has his work in me and in you. The result is a way of life that proclaims the gospel to the world. So we're not just telling the gospel to each other through acts of love. We're proclaiming it to the world. Listen, I've learned that in a very personal way here over the last 10 years of my life at EMC. Because here, we, my family, and I specifically, because I'm speaking on my, my behalf at the moment, but my family certainly would affirm this, I've experienced deeply the love that comes from God through you. His love to me through you as a result has strengthened my faith. I'm more firmly convinced that God is real, that the things I believe as a Christian are true. Yes, because I believe it has been revealed and I believe that in history it happened and the evidence demands a verdict and I, and I agree with it. But in addition to that, I've experienced it. I've experienced the reality of it through you. Because your love is not a, a worldly love or a selfish love or some sort of superficial, you know, skin deep level love or, or some sort of artificial love. No, your love is costly love. Your love is sacrificial love. And therefore your love can only be described as a divine love. When I see it in you and when I receive it from you, it convinces me that God is real and that God is at work and that his grace truly has transforming power. I'm convinced. It's clearly a supernatural love that comes from outside of you. And so when I see it and when I receive it, I'm convinced. And when I express it back, I get to witness the fruit of God's, own, God's work in my own heart. When I, when I love you with that kind of love, it confirms to me that, that that's not, boy, that wasn't me at all. I know what Sean is capable of. And it's a very different thing than agape love, I assure you. I'd be horrified if you ever were to somehow you know, secure a time machine and went back to Sean B.C. <laughs> I'm a changed person. And, and the fruit of the change convinces me that it wasn't because of me. I couldn't do that on my own. I couldn't love you for one second like that on my own. And so you and I, we, the church, can have a certainty in what we believe because we get to experience it in life together as the body of Christ. Tell that to your friend, your Christian friend, who says that going to church doesn't really matter. You know, I, I appreciated Pastor Richard's uh, you know, comment, you know, 80 gallons to baptize a believer, but one drop of rain you know, to keep them out of church. There's some truth to that. Now listen, you all endured many drops of rain to be here today. This type of rain is the kind that the, the, the raindrops are really small, but it just comes, like it's, like, it's a drenching kind of rain, right? And you endured that to be here today. You just went through days of, you know, turkey coma, 
you survived Black Friday insanity. Some of you came in here this morning quite blue after rivalry week yesterday. All joking aside, some of you came in with real burden, real burdens, things, burdens from things that actually matter. Turkey, Black Friday, football, all that aside. You came in here with real burden. And real burden has a tendency to, to solicit real doubt. When we're up against it and things are going south and suddenly fear creeps in, fear and doubt, they go, they're, they make they're not strange bedfellows. They are bedfellows. They come together. And you came here to persevere. You persevered through that to be here. And I'm so glad you did. Because there's a whole subsect of evangelical Christendom that view church life as, for some reason, optional for the Christian. How do you ever Listen, that may work when things are going well, but how do you ever persevere through the hardship when you don't have one another? Pastor Max used to say, we don't go to church be to get us into heaven. We go to church because we're not in heaven yet. I've butchered that line 15 different ways, but you get the gist. We need each other, don't we? Not just for encouragement, not just to meet needs. We need each other in order to, for the, the fruit, the evidence of our salvation to be manifest in our midst. You cannot love someone in isolation like the Bible commands us to, the action of love. It's not just a sentiment that you, some warm, gushy, no, it's the action of love. And when we are, and we're commanded to it. It's not just a fruit, it's a command. That's the command in verse 22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. God has done something in your heart. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your heart. It's not the, what God is working into you is meant to be something that has worked out of you. You're not a sponge. You're a fire hose. The life of God passing through you. And when that happens, oh, you get Elizabeth City Evangelical Methodist Church the single most significant Christian group that my life has ever been a part of. And I'm stronger because of it, and I have a deeper love for Jesus and a closer walk with God because of it, because of your love, his love through you to me. So, how can we be certain of our faith as we await with a ready, holy hope for the coming of Christ in these last evil days? Well, by keeping central what, what Christ has done for us in history. And by living out what Christ has done in us personally and corporately. So focusing on what he has done in history and then living out what he's done in us personally. We need the scriptures. We need one another. And our hope for the future is certain because of what has happened in the past, what has been revealed to us in the past, and what is happening in our midst today. You can have a certain hope. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever. 
because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But how long does the word of the Lord remain? Forever. Your hope is grounded in the word that never fades or fails. It's the word of the good news that was preached to you. So church, this is how you live rightly in the end times. Right? That's the theme of the series. Living rightly in the end times. It's not by obsessing over whatever signs might be discerned from the latest geopolitical world event. No. It is by living every moment as the redeemed people of God with a ready, holy, certain hope. And from that hope, we can sing that song, not just because it was on the screen, but we can sing it with our lives. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, take your people home. You can, can you sing that with, with hopefulness, with readiness, with, with certainty this morning? I know you can because of these, thi- these things are true. So Pastor Jeff, come up. He's going to lead us in a closing song, and you feel free to respond how you feel led. This is Christ the King Sunday. You submit to the Lordship of Christ and whatever form is appropriate for this morning. If you want to raise your hands and for the first time in your life, because that's what you feel the Lord commanding you to do, you obey him and not your own sense of insecurities. If you feel led to come and pray, you obey the Lord and you come and pray. If you feel compelled to cross from one side of the room to the other, listen, we're going to keep this orderly. We're not looking for like people running the aisles like crazy people here this morning. But if you want to walk to somebody and put an arm around their shoulder and love them as you sing, you are invited to. It's okay. If you need to reconcile with somebody, oh, what a beautiful picture of the grace of the God who reconciled us to himself. You obey the Lord on Christ the King Sunday. You do, maybe you need to do something out of here. I don't know. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you. He's at, he's at the door of your heart. It's like, let me come in. In whatever way I, you need him to come. He wants to come in. And maybe he wants to compel you to go out and do something. I don't know. But you obey him this morning, okay? Obey him. Pastor Jeff?